This week in KMA Land, Page County enacts wind turbine moratorium. Montgomery County Board backs eminent domain ban on pipeline. Montgomery County Solar Ordinance revisited. Shen EMS tells lawmakers we need help. Safe Banquet celebrates excellence in education. And the latest on COVID-19 in Page and Atchison counties. I'm Mike Peterson. After months of debate, Page County officials took action this week on future wind energy project applications. By a two-to-one vote Tuesday, the county's Board of Supervisors approved a resolution placing a moratorium for up to 180 days on the filing of any permits for wind energy conversion systems to allow the board to review the current related ordinance. However, Supervisor Jacob Holmes disagreed with the final sentence that exempted any permits already filed to the county, saying there is a big jump from submitting a permit application versus having already been granted that permit by the county. I think knowing that there's some harm that could happen, that's what we're saying with this, there's possible harm to property rights and whatever, this needs to be in effect so we can look at this to, to protect everybody in Page County. We have not issued any permits. If we'd issued a permit, if a permit, permit's already been issued, then that's, that's they've been grandfathered in, but no permit has been issued. So I, I would like to see the last sentence struck. Currently, County Engineer J.D. King is still reviewing Invenergy's Shenandoah Hills Wind Farm Project that would straddle the Page-Fremont County line south of Shenandoah. Holmes then made a motion to strike the final sentence from the resolution. However, Supervisor Chuck Morris, who cast the lone dissenting vote, says he is against the idea of any moratorium. He says he feels the ordinance has worked in the past, and it puts a close for business sign on the county. We had two developments that uh, were ongoing in 2019, and uh, in East River and Buchanan townships, that development did not work because enough landowners did not sign up. This is a property rights issue for a landowner, in my mind, from day one, it still is today, and to put a moratorium of any kind on development, put a, we're closed for business sign on Page County, is wrong for Page County, in my view, and I will not support it. In terms of potential litigation within Venergy, should the board include already filed projects in the moratorium, Page County Attorney Carl Songson says a pathway is still unclear in how the courts would handle the case. This is due to the Hardin County case being voluntarily dismissed by RWE Energy before the trial. For various reasons. I think they listed it as business interests or their business uh, portion of the company decided it wasn't productive. And even if they succeeded, there would be a long period before they were able to do anything on it. Same law firm, different uh, company, kind of different circumstances. Um, I don't know if it really provides any sort of pathway or any, any way of understanding how a court is going to do with that. So. The amendment to strike the sentence exempting projects already filed ultimately failed by a two-to-one vote, with Holmes casting the loan vote in favor. Supervisors Chair Alan Armstrong says he is more open to looking at potential future changes for the ordinance and added as technology changes or improves, so should the county's ordinance. There are certain things that maybe can be adjusted. Technology has changed. Uh, the lighting system, the, the, sounds, the sound issue. That may all change just because of changing in the development of the product. What about Decom height? De decommissioning, heights. We don't even know what they're looking at. If they're, if they're building a 500-foot tower or a 300-foot tower, we don't know that. 
And with the resolution passed as written, Invenergy's permit application would not be subject to any of the changes made to the resolution. And the proposal is yet to be presented to the board for a public hearing or approval. Meanwhile, the Montgomery County Board of Supervisors this week took a stand on another volatile issue, the use of eminent domain for a proposed carbon pipeline. By unanimous vote Tuesday morning, the county's Board of Supervisors approved a letter of objection addressed to the Iowa Utilities Board for using eminent domain to acquire property for a proposed carbon dioxide pipeline. Uh, action by the supervisors follows last week's meeting in which several local residents spoke out against any effort by Summit Carbon Solutions to use the legal maneuver in securing land for the proposed Midwest Express CO2 pipeline across Montgomery County and other affected areas. Supervisor Mike Olson read the letter noting the board's objection. The Montgomery County Board of Supervisors today passed a unanimous motion to submit an official comment objection for the docket regarding the Summit Carbon Pipeline. This board does not object to the installation of the pipeline. However, it believes the right of passage should lie with our landowner. Supervisors Chair Mark Peterson says the letter is similar to one recently approved by the Shelby County Board of Supervisors and reviewed by Assistant County Attorney Bruce Swanson. While saying the letter may not carry any legal ramifications, Peterson hopes that opposition expressed by the supervisors would send a message. I guess in my opinion, I think it's good that we do anything we can to allow our landowners in the west part of the county to have a level playing field to work on. This is a step in that direction. Utilities board members aren't expected to rule on the eminent domain matter until March of next year. More discussion regarding Montgomery County's solar ordinance took place this week. At its latest meeting Wednesday, the county's Planning and Zoning Commission revisited a solar ordinance that was recently adopted by the county's Board of Supervisors. The commission began its meeting by ratifying its approval of the solar ordinance at its October 13th meeting by a 5-1 to vote. Commission Chair Bryant Amos says the ratification comes after concerns were raised about whether the board had a quorum for the ordinance's initial proposal. There was three board members here. I was not. So the legal question is, is three a quorum of a board of six, or does it take four? Well, the legal advice, rather than to fight this, and then have all the work that has been done go for naught because it's all gone, was to ratify that vote that was taken then. After hearing a number of public comments, Commission Member Vicki Rossander, who cast the lone dissenting vote in the ratification, expressed disappointment that these concerns had not been addressed sooner. She began the Commission's discussion by motioning to amend by substitution, replacing the ordinance with a version currently used by Mills County. The county attorney had looked at the Mills County ordinance, and from what he shared with me, he is in, I don't necessarily think he's in agreement that it should be substituted, but he does agree that it is a cleaner ordinance that is more easily understandable and doesn't have the problems that ours have. However, the motion died for lack of a second as several commission members expressed concerns over the short notice. But the commission still made 12 amendments to the recently approved ordinance. The plight of emergency services took center stage at last Saturday's legislative coffee in Shenandoah. Officials with the Shenandoah Medical Center and the city's EMTs asked lawmakers for support making emergency medical services a statewide essential service. 
Under current law approved in last year's legislative session, EMS agencies need a 60% supermajority vote from the public in order to levy taxes for such services. Changes sought by SMC and EMS personnel would allow county boards of supervisors to declare local ambulance services as essential so that they may receive tax revenues without the need for a public referendum. SMC CEO Matt Sells says staffing Shenandoah's ambulance service, a joint city hospital operation, has increased in cost and difficulty each year. We as a service are beginning to struggle to recruit individuals that are willing to work in an on-call capacity. Uh, with the labor market as competitive and, and tight as it is currently, finding individuals w- that are willing to work for low on-call pay without a guarantee of higher callback wages on their shifts uh, is becoming more and more difficult. Under the current system, Celsus continuing emergency services is not sustainable without significant financial support from hospitals, cities, and counties. As a result, he says EMS officials from Page and Fremont counties are expected to meet in the coming weeks to plan a campaign to make emergency services essential services in both counties. But he adds there's no guarantee of success, setting up a scary proposition. You know, most individuals believe that when I call 911 and the, that I need a, an ambulance service or EMS services, that they're going to come. But the reality is, without it being established as a, a statewide essential service, that guarantee does not exist, right? It's at the mercy of what we're able to provide uh, from a staffing perspective. Shenandoah EMS Director Ty Davison provided a vivid demonstration of the response time variance between local and out-of-town emergency calls. Within city limits, Davison says the response time for a four-person ambulance crew averages under four minutes. Calls outside of Shenandoah are a different story. We are going to come and we're going to be there in under four minutes to help you out in the city limits. If we have to respond outside of the city limits, we're going to send the duty person, we're going to pull out of the ambulance garage and sit there and just sit there and wait for five minutes potentially for somebody to respond from home because we can only staff an on-call person. Well, saying he appreciates the city and hospital support and that EMS operations are considered essential services, Evanson says more help is needed. He says the current EMT pay of $2.25 an hour is one step above volunteer services, and he continues losing qualified personnel. Thanking emergency personnel on hand for their services, State Representative Cecil Dolacek says each community in his district is facing problems with retaining staff in a variety of fields. With only a few weeks remaining in the 2022 legislative session, Dolacek says it's unlikely anything will be done on the issue this year. Shenandoah's education heritage was celebrated at a gala event last Saturday evening. Shenandoah's Elks Lodge was the site of the Shenandoah, Iowa Education Foundation's inaugural Excellence in Education Banquet. In accordance with the community's sesquicentennial, the banquet honored 25 current instructors, administrators, and staff members with 25 years or more in education experience. Highlighting the evening were speeches by two SHS alumni. Kyle Horn, a 1982 graduate, received the Foundation's first-ever Alumnus of the Year Award. In 2014, Horn founded America's Job Honor Awards, a nonprofit, nonpartisan initiative celebrating people who overcome barriers to employment, such as disabilities, criminal convictions, immigration challenges, and ageism, and the employers who hire them. 
Horn credited his formative years in Shenandoah for his success in his career. The start that I received here through the Shenandoah school system is just absolutely critical. You know, I look back, I look into the audience today, see a lot of the faces of teachers who sewed into my life, um, who made an incredible impact on me um, in ways that went well beyond academics, but just sowing encouragement, um, sowing hope. And, um, and those things never leave you. Another SHS graduate reflected on past educators is guest speaker. Scott Ginger, a member of the Shenandoah High class of 1976, taught speech and debate at high schools in Nevada for 30 years. Ginger says the lessons learned in Shenandoah helped him create a successful culture at his high school. On reflection, in part, it was the classrooms, hallways, locker rooms, and playing fields here in Shan that helped me build that culture. You might say I'd been sharing a piece of Shenandoah with my students without saying I'm sharing Shenandoah. Still to come, the latest on COVID-19 in KMA land. With data indicating a continuing decline in COVID cases following a spike in January due to the Omicron variant. Page County Public Health Administrator Jessica Erdman says only two positive cases reported to her county during a 14-day period, the lowest total since the pandemic began two years ago. Speaking on KMA's Morning Line program Monday morning, Erdman attributed the decline to better mitigation strategies and increased awareness. Well, I think the the new variant is less transmissible than the Delta was. And I just think, you know, people are being more cautious. We've been living this life for the last two years, so they're more mindful. It's still here. We have to learn to live with it. I just think people are being a lot more mindful about going out when they're ill. At the same time, Erdman says the number of individuals seeking COVID vaccinations has dropped. Currently, the county's vaccination rate stands at 56.3 percent. It's definitely declined. I think, you know, those folks who want it, they've gotten it. And, you know, we are seeing one or two trickle in here and there wanting to start the series. But it's definitely we've seen a decline. Page County's next COVID vaccination clinics take place April 5th and 19th from 4 to 5 p.m. at the county's public health office at 210 North 17th Street in Clarinda. Anyone wishing to make an appointment for the next COVID clinics or with questions regarding vaccinations and testing should call Page County Public Health at 712-850-1212. Atchison County officials, meanwhile, were among those rejoicing over a major announcement regarding COVID-19. Missouri Governor Mike Parson announced an end to the COVID crisis in the state at a news conference Wednesday. Parson added the state will shift to an endemic phase of the pandemic, and that began yesterday. Now, this means the state will scale back some of its virus response efforts, such as ending its universal contact tracing and individual case investigations. Missouri's online COVID-19 dashboard updates will also move to weekly instead of daily. Parsons says Missouri has dealt with the virus for two years and hospitals are better prepared today. This does not mean that COVID is no longer present or that future spikes in cases will not occur. However, from the knowledge we have gained and the tools we have acquired over the past two years, the threat this virus poses has significantly diminished. Parsons' announcement was welcome news to Northwest Missouri health officials like Julie Livingood, administrator of Atchison County's Health Department. We are very excited and happy to hear this. We know that SARS-CoV-2 is going to continue to circulate in the community, but um, it's nice to know that it's considered endemic. 
The announcement came as Atchison County reported zero COVID cases for the week of March 21st through the 27th and only three cases the week before that. Livengood attributed the case decline to increased immunity in the community, and she believes mitigation strategies such as mask wearing and vaccinations helped in the long run. We believe that our almost 60% vaccination rate has really helped in our communities, and mask wearing did help early on, especially when it was very, very, the cases were very high. We do hope that people will still continue to stay home when they do not feel well. We hope that if they are out and about and they're not feeling well, maybe people will continue to wear a mask. I'm not sure, but we hope that people will continue to use those mitigation efforts. Lyman says her office is still holding vaccination clinics Tuesdays and Thursdays from 7.30 a.m. to 5 p.m., She says each vaccine is readily available in the county. Anyone with questions regarding COVID vaccination should contact Atchison County Health Department at 660-736-4121. Meanwhile, new concerns this week regarding a virus affecting bird flocks, with two more outbreaks of pathogenic avian influenza in commercial poultry flocks in Iowa. State Agriculture Secretary Mike Nag announced Tuesday that a commercial egg-laying chicken flock of 1.5 million birds in Guthrie County and a commercial turkey flock of 28,000 in Hamilton County are now the eighth and ninth confirmed outbreaks of the virus that primarily affects birds. Nag says the Iowa Department of Agriculture and Land Stewardship is working closely with the USDA and affected producers to dispose of the infected flocks. He says producers are eligible for indemnification payments from USDA for the destroyed birds, as well as disposal costs, but that amount does not cover the value of the bird. These payments do not make a producer whole. This is a devastating event for a a livestock producer. Uh, Financially, uh, it's difficult, and of course the stress of, of managing through this situation. So, um, we're, we're appreciative of the support and, and the dollars help with the response. Uh, but uh, it, it, it's far from making a producer whole. Uh, currently, all of the confirmed outbreaks came from contact between a wild bird where the virus is prevalent with a domestic bird. State veterinarian Dr. Jeff Kasent says the department continues to monitor wild bird mitigation, which has an impact on the spread. There's some days there's a lot of movements, and when it gets cold, uh, there's a little bit of a stall out, and even some days there's movements in different directions. So we're all hopeful that it moves through quickly and we get to warmer weather, but it all depends on the weather and how quickly they move. USDA confirmed outbreaks in nearly 15.5 million commercial domestic birds during the current outbreak of HPAI, those numbers as of earlier this week. Shenandoah school officials say the district's instructors are receiving a solid bump in salaries come next school year. By a 3 to nothing vote in a special electronic meeting Thursday morning, the Shenandoah School Board approved the collective bargaining agreement with the Shenandoah Education Association for the 2022-23 school year, with a 3.23% increase in regular salary costs. Under the agreement, the base wage is set at $39,325 with no aging of the current salary scale. Shenandoah School Superintendent Dr. Kerry Nelson told KMA News the agreement was set following negotiations between the board and SEA representatives. Negotiations is a process where a group of staff from SEA, which is our teachers association, meets with us and board representatives and we negotiate what the base salary is going to be. And so the board and the Teachers Association agreed 
on that percentage amount and really focused in on increasing our base to make that a little bit more marketable in the areas. And SEA officials originally proposed a 7.95% increase, while the district countered with 2.5%. Overall, Nelson described the negotiations as a good conversation between both sides. I think the staff understands that it's difficult to make these kinds of decisions, and I think the board wants to do everything they can to support our staff. Um, we are talking about money. We have to be fiscally responsible, and there are boundaries and limitations. But I think in general, um, it's a good conversation we try to work together. We try to understand each other's perspectives. And that's what's really important is when you can look at the big picture versus just an individual. And I, I think um, it, it worked out nicely and we were able to come to a good agreement that benefits everyone. Board member Benny Rogers and Adam Vanderfleet were absent from the special meeting. Vietnam War veterans were recognized for their service at a special event in Shenandoah late Tuesday morning. Local veterans organizations hosted a special lunch and program at Shenandoah's Veterans Memorial Museum commemorating National Vietnam War Veterans Day. And one of today's service members paid tribute to the military men and women of yesteryear. Major Ryan S. Rhino Asbridge, commanding officer of Sea Flight 49th Intelligence Squadron at Offutt Air Force Base, was the event's keynote speaker. Veteran of deployments in Iran, Afghanistan, and Libya, Asbridge recalled the war's impact on his family. His father's cousin was killed while serving in Vietnam in 1967. Rather than risk being drafted to Vietnam, his father opted to serve in the U.S. Army Reserve for four years. Asbridge, however, says neither his father nor anyone else should feel guilty for serving stateside. He served his bit, and in, in my experience, as, as somebody who has served in combat operations, I don't hold it against anybody who was back home uh, making sure I was getting paid or making sure I was getting food because you know what everybody today it's a volunteer force and nobody has to be there and everybody's bit counts and whether it's you're in uniform or whether you're here in this audience today supporting the folks who are that matters. Growing up Asbridge says the Vietnam War was omnipresent in his formative years. Teachers who were Vietnam veterans were big influences on his life and over the years, Ashbridge says he continued to study the war. The war brought out amazing acts of heroism in the midst of unspeakable horror. Also, what did I learn? I learned about the stories of the mistreatment of veterans upon returning. And then I've also learned that America spent the next 30 years trying to avoid repeating some of the mistakes that we made in Vietnam, both in a military capacity and in how we treat our veterans. Asbridge urged the audience to dedicate themselves to honor those who served in Vietnam. If you're a veteran, tell your story. Tell it to somebody else. They'll learn. If you're a family member of a Vietnam veteran, tell your family member's story. Another way is to make your voice heard, whether that's to the, uh, you know, your local officials or to your members of Congress or the White House. Make your voice heard. Tell your story. Vietnam and Korean War veterans on hand received special commemorative pins honoring them for their service. And a Southwest Iowa man is going home $100,000 richer after hitting the jackpot on a scratch-off lottery ticket in Glenwood. 
The Iowa Lottery announced Wednesday that 33-year-old Jacob Harper of Glenwood claimed the prize at the lottery headquarters in Clive. Harper's big win came courtesy of the lottery's $10 scratch game, $100,000 Mega Crossword. After purchasing his tickets at Casey's at 601 South Locust Street in Glenwood, Harper says he had sat down to scratch them off later that night. And it wasn't until one of the final tickets when he discovered the coveted sixth red word. It's like 2 o'clock in the morning, so I'm a little tired. Finally, I find number six, and just everything stops. And I'm just like, no way. This, this doesn't happen. There's no way this has happened. And I counted again and again. I think I got up to like 10 times of, of going through and seeing six before I finally sunk in that it's just like, I just won $100,000. Harper says he quickly placed a late night call to his parents, who says he had also come across a bit of luck with the lottery, setting off a friendly family contest. Harper says he intends to use the $100,000 prize to quit his day job and pursue his Omaha-based computer business full-time he and his friends started. Harper was the 16th winner of the top $100,000 prize. That wraps up this week in KMA. Be listening each week at this time for This Week in KMA Land. And for more information all the time, log on to kmaland.com where you can hear this program in its entirety. For the entire KMA News team, this is Mike Peterson. Thanks for joining us. Have a great weekend. This has been a presentation of KMA News.